One of the great tragedies of our times is that our generation seems much more satisfied with its own appointed and inadequate saviors than the savior that God himself has provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are more pleased with our own construction, our own self-made salvation than the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, the Savior. Indeed, the passage that we read together from John chapter 4 is essentially about Jesus, our Savior. I know very often we perceive this as the story of the Samaritan woman. And while she does play an important role in the story, the story is essentially about Jesus, and in particular about Jesus as the unique Savior. We began this the last time we were together here in looking at chapter 4 of Jesus having been in Jerusalem, deciding to depart from Jerusalem for Galilee and choosing to take the route that would lead him through the territory of the Samaritans, through Samaria. And Jesus arrives in Sychar of Samaria to the well of Jacob, where at noon in the blazing heat he takes rest at the well. And there he meets a Samaritan woman who had come to draw water. And Jesus asks of her water to drink. And she, startled by the question, by the, by the request, says to him, How is it, in verse 9, that you are a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water? Because the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus then goes on to tell her that he, ha- that he provides and offers something greater than water, that he would give her living water. But she misunderstands, and there is this theme of misunderstanding which is running through this story. And so Jesus tells her that he offers her living water, a reference which we considered as that which points to the Holy Spirit himself. The woman, as she converses with Jesus, has a secret that she's hiding, at least from Jesus. And so Jesus turns to her and says, go call your husband. She wants this living water. He says, go call your husband. And she says to him, I I do not have a husband. Jesus responds to her. And remember, our Lord had never met this woman. But he says to her, indeed, you have spoken rightly. Because you have been married on five occasions. You have had five different husbands. And you are now living with a man who is not your husband. And she therefore perceives him to be a prophet. But you know, it it, it begins to become hot for her. And so she seeks to deflect adroitly, skillfully deflect or turn the conversation away from her personal life to something more neutral, like the place of worship. And so she engages our Lord in a conversation regarding the right place, the proper place of worship. And Jesus points out to her that 
the worship of the Samaritans is a worship rooted in ignorance. They do not know what they worship. He goes on to tell them that God desires true worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. Worship that is genuine from the heart. And worship that is in accordance with the revealed will of God. And those of you who were with us on Sunday evening last will remember that we reflected on what true worship is. The nature of true worship. And I suggested then that that we as God's people must ensure that in our singing and in our worship, not only are we sincere and true, but our worship must reflect the greatness of God. Because as one writer pointed out, that worship, the way we worship is making a theological statement. Our worship must reflect the grandeur of God, the greatness of God. We must do all that we can to avoid trivial worship because we have a God who is not trivial, but is also a God of grandeur. Well, the woman tells Jesus that when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, he will reveal all things. And our Lord Jesus now discloses that he is indeed the Messiah. From this point, the writer, the narrator, John, shifts to a different scene. And now we see the return, at least from verse 38 and following, we see the return of the disciples who had gone into the city to buy bread. They return, verse 39, and found Jesus conversing with this woman. But they are afraid to ask him why he's speaking with, them, with her. They impress upon Jesus the need to eat. And our Lord tells them that he has eaten, that he has, he has food. But he has to go on to clarify that the food that he has is not physical food, but indeed the will of God and fulfilling the purpose of God. The woman after the disciples return, left her water pot and goes, to the city, goes back into the city. And she tells her compatriot, there is a man that I've met who has told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? Our Lord Jesus talks to the disciples and tells them that the field is ripe to, unto harvest, referring to the Samaritan that, they, that there is a conversion that will take place, that they are ready to be saved, and that indeed they will reap where they have not sown. In other words, Jesus and of course John the Baptist before him had already gone ahead and sown the seed of the word of God, and the disciples are going to enter into reaping even where they have not sown. The climax of this story comes with the Samaritans coming to Jesus. They had believed the woman's testimony about Jesus, but now, having come to Jesus, they impress upon the Lord the need for him to remain with them for a while, and Jesus obliges and stays there in Sychar for two days. And at the end of the time, they said this to the woman in verse 42, Now we believe. Not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. There are some translation that leaves out the phrase, the Christ. But even so, there is no material difference in the meaning of the passage. What they're saying to the woman is, we have believed your testimony that this is the Christ. But now we have heard him. And now we know 
for a certainty that this is the Savior of the world. I want to bring to conclusion this reflection on this section of the Gospel of John by turning over this expression and trying to unpack this expression, the Savior of the world that is used by the Samaritans to the woman. Whatever we may think of this expression, the Savior of the world, I want to suggest, first of all, that it points to Jesus as the exclusive Savior. We have heard and we know that this is the Savior of the world. The designation Savior of the world portrays Jesus first and foremost as the exclusive Savior. There are a number of titles that are given to Jesus in the passage. He is described as a Jew by the woman in verse 9, described as a prophet in verse 19. He is the Christ or the Messiah in verse 25. He is even man in verse 29. He is rabbi by the disciples. They speak to him and call him rabbi, teacher. But Jesus, more than any of these, is indeed the Savior of the world. This concept, this designation, Savior of the world, occurs only twice in the entire Bible. It occurs here in John chapter 4 and verse 42. And it occurs another place in the writings of John, that is in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14. There John records, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Savior of the world. Now the term satir, Savior, describes one who delivers from imminent danger. And the Samaritans express their confidence, their absolute certainty. He says, they, they say to the woman, we have heard and we know. He's using the perfect tense. There was an absolute certainty on their part. We have heard and we have come now to know that this is the Savior of the world. First, we must recognize that the adverb, indeed, Indeed, this is the Savior of the world. This term, indeed, means truly and actually. And along with the definite article, indeed, this is the Savior of the world, John is distinguishing Jesus from all other claimants to Savior. We know that in the first century, there were different groups of people who were viewed as Savior. We know, for instance, that the gods, the Greek gods and the Roman gods were perceived as savior because they were thought as capable of delivering from physical calamities, from disasters like shipwreck and from even sickness. And so the gods were seen as saviors. We also know that even philosophers, and I mentioned this when we were going through 1 Timothy, but even philosophers were seen as saviors. Because they were considered to be those who were, who were able to, to apply therapy to the soul. They were considered to be therapists of the soul. They could deliver people from the fear of death and inward disturbance and anxiety. And so philosophers were saviors. They applied therapy to the soul. But even more interestingly, from AD 50 and onward, the Roman emperor, the Caesar 
began to be given or began to receive the designation as Savior. One of the the amazing things was the Roman Senate would appoint the Caesar God. They would designate him as a God. It's kind of strange how human beings can make another man a God, but they, they did that. The Senate says that Caesar is a God. And he began to receive the designation Savior because he, he had a powerful army, the most powerful army in the world. He could guarantee their peace and beat back enemies who attacked them. So they were, he was seen as a Savior, because of, particularly because of his military prowess and the army that he had. There was a well-known inscription at Halicarnassus in Turkey, an ancient Greek site, where a designation was on earth, a designation to the Emperor Augustus with the title Savior addressed to him. We also know that Nero also was seen and called not merely Savior, but Savior of the world. And it is this backdrop that we must keep in mind when we read this statement made, this declaration made by the Samaritans that we have heard. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It is not a subtle rebuttal and rejection of Caesar. It is a glaring rejection because what John is saying it is that it is not Caesar and it is not the philosophers, but it is Jesus who is the Savior, one who delivers the world. And so the statement shows the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Savior. He is the exclusive Savior. You see, not only does the statement, this is indeed the Savior of the world, demarcates, differentiates, distinguishes Jesus from other saviors, it also simultaneously draws Jesus Christ into the greatest and tightest association with God the Father himself. Because John knows that this statement refers to God, and I just want to point out to you that when you read the Gospels, you need to know that the Gospel writers are first of all theologians. They are writing history, but they're writing theological history. And when John chooses to include this statement of the inhabitants of Sychar, he does it because he's making a greater theological point. He's making a point about Jesus and his uniqueness as Savior. You cannot read the statement, this is indeed the Savior of the world outside of John's larger purpose to impress upon his audience in the first century that Jesus Christ is the unique Savior. In fact, if you go back earlier in this gospel, you will find in chapter 317, John already began to point out that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And so he says in John 317, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And after the Samaritan's declaration that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, John also quotes Jesus' own declaration that he is the Savior of the world. And so in John chapter 12, 47, John draws upon Jesus' words 
when he said, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. We need to understand then that this declaration by the Samaritans, this is indeed the savior of the world, falls within the matrix of a larger discussion regarding Christ as the unique savior. And so John is identifying Jesus with God, not only distinguishing him from fraudulent saviors, but, but identifying him in the most intimate of ways with God of the Old Testament. It is God in the Old Testament who is seen as savior. And this term and concept of God as savior occurs frequently in the book of Isaiah. And take Isaiah 43, where the prophet says, referring to the Lord, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom and Ethiopian Seba in your place. Or again in the same chapter, Isaiah 43 verse 11. And the Lord says, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. It is this language that God retains for himself, that I am the one who delivers you from Egypt. I am the one who delivers you from your enemies. This God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, who proclaims himself to be Savior, John identifies him as Jesus in the New Testament. He is the Savior, not only of Israel, but of the world. The Apostle Paul will later on, with the full, in full knowledge of the Old Testament backdrop of the term sutter and its connection to God, will use this same term Savior for Jesus. He does so very frequently in the pastoral epistles. In, and for example, in, in the epistle to the Philippians, he will say, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior. And he describes him as the Lord Jesus Christ. So this statement, as we, we have it recorded here, first and foremost, it impresses upon us that Jesus is the exclusive Savior. But I want to suggest, secondly, that the designation Savior of the world implies that Jesus is not only the exclusive Savior, but that he is the effective Savior. I know that there's a much discussion that goes on around the saving work of Jesus Christ. The intent of the atonement. And I want to suggest to you that though this is tautological, it is obvious, you can't have a savior who doesn't save. And if we say that Jesus Christ is savior, then he must deliver us from something. Jesus Christ is the effective savior. It is implied. The People of Sychar says this is indeed the Savior. They do not perceive him to be a hypothetical or a potential Savior. Because a potential Savior is no Savior. But he is the Savior of the world. The one who actually saves. Now, the writer does not explain. And this verse itself does not explain how Jesus goes about saving. But there are different views as to how he does this. One of them was advanced by Rudolf Bultmann, the German theologian of the, of the early 20th century. And Bultmann says that in the Gospel of John, and by the way, let's be clear that Bultmann was known as a new theologian. He sought to chart a course between what he would perceive as the ugly ditch of New Testament supernaturalism 
and the realism of the modern day in which he lived. In other words, what Bultmann argued was, if you want people in this age, in this advanced 20th century, to believe in the Gospels and believe in the Bible, you've got to get rid of the supernatural elements like miracles in the Bible. We are so advanced and educated, we cannot be expected to believe in miracles. And so he says you've got to strip the, the Gospels of miracles. Now this same Bultmann who called for demythologizing the New Testament says that Jesus saves, but that he saves by revelation. It is because he revealed himself to the people of Sychar that they are saved. Now, on the surface, that is true. That one who is saved must come to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. The problem with that kind of statement, however, by arguing that Jesus does not save by, by the atonement, is that he denies the overwhelming evidence in the Gospel of John that the basis by which Jesus saves his people is not revelation, but the atonement that is by his death on the cross. I argued before that John is a theologian and that this state must be taken in the context of this literature, uh, this book that he has written. This is indeed the savior of the world. He is the exclusive savior, but he is the effective savior. And John reveals that Jesus Christ is the effective savior, first of all, because he saves by his sacrificial death. This, you know, is underscored in the first chapter of John. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, John the evangelist, John the apostle, records the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we are told, in John chapter 129, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does Jesus save? He is the Savior of the world. He's an effective Savior. But how does he save? He saves by taking away the sins of the world. And John identifies Jesus as the Lamb. He's harking back to the book of Leviticus, which teaches that if sin has to be removed, one has to bring a kid or a lamb. That animal has to be killed. Blood has to be spilled. There has to be an atoning, an appeasing sacrifice to God to remove sin. And indeed, the entirety of the Old Testament must be seen as a waiting for a lamb. A final, a definitive sacrifice that could take away sins. Because we know that even with all of the animals that were killed in the Old Testament, all the blood that was shed, sin could never totally be removed. And so you had people like Elizabeth and Anna and people like these who were waiting for the salvation of God. What, they were, what were they waiting for? They were waiting for a lamb. They were waiting for a final dealing with their sins. And John, inspired by the Holy Ghost, sees Jesus coming to him and he says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God. Finally, after centuries, he has arrived. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by the way, 
This is an effective Savior because he not only carries the sin. John says, behold the Lamb of God that takes it away, that removes it. How does Jesus save the world? He is an effective Savior who saves by his sacrificial death. This same writer, John, will also underscore that Jesus saves, delivers by dying on the cross by his crucifixion. So later in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's drawing a correlation between Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness and those who had been bitten, those who looked at the serpent and believed they would be saved. So Jesus Christ would be lifted up. We call that expression lifting up a double entendre in the Gospel of John because it has two meanings. Lifting up could mean to be exalted. But lifting up in this context refers to crucifixion. How do we know that? Because later in chapter 12 of John, he explains this. Jesus is speaking. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. John chapter 12, 32 to 33. And then John inserts an editorial comment. And he says this. He says that this, Jesus referring to him being lifted up, this signifies by what death he would die. So the lifting up of Jesus refers to his death on the cross. Jesus is the savior of the world. And the effective Savior because he was lifted up. Because he was the sacrifice for sin. He saves by his sacrificial death. John also continues to teach that Jesus saves not only by his sacrificial death, by giving himself as the perfect lamb for our sins, but that he saves by his substitutionary death. So in John chapter 6, 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. What our Lord is teaching is that he will give himself voluntarily. He will give himself to the cross, but he will give himself in the place of another. We need to know that the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ was not punished for his sins because he had no sins. But you see, he was giving his flesh, he was giving his life for, in the place of, on behalf of the world. He came in our place, took our punishment upon himself. He took the blame and the punishment of our sins and he suffered in our place. So that the death of Jesus Christ must be seen as a real payment for sins. How does he save? He saves not only by his sacrificial death and his substitutionary death in our place, but he saves by his satisfactory death. So John again, if you pursue the theology of atonement in the gospel of John, you will see that in chapter 19 when Jesus is about to die, we are told that when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, tetelestai. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He saves us by offering to God a sacrificial offering. 
He offered to God a substitutionary offering for us. And he offered to God a satisfactory offering. He had kept all of God's commandments, kept all the law required. We call that the active obedience of Jesus because he did everything that God required in the law. But the cross is considered to be the passive obedience in that he surrendered to death. That for Jesus to save us, he not only had to earn righteousness by keeping the law, he had to remove our sins. He had to face the penalty for the infractions against God's law, the, the, the crimes we had committed against God. And so he surrendered himself to the cross, the passive obedience of Jesus. And Jesus knew that he had fulfilled everything his father required, said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Why? Because he saves by offering to God a satisfactory offering, a once and for all offering that is received. This is indeed the Savior of the world, the exclusive Savior. This is indeed the effective Savior, the one who saves by his sacrificial, substitutionary, and satisfactory death. But there is another argument that I want to present to you regarding this statement about Jesus. First, thirdly, it refers the designation Savior of the world, depicts Jesus as the extensive, and by extensive it's an unhappy description, but by extensive I mean the universal Savior. The designation Savior of the world depicts Jesus as the extensive or the universal Savior. The people of Sychar said to the woman, now we believe, because of what, not because of what you have said. For we ourselves have heard him and we know that is indeed, this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. This statement expresses something of the scope of our Lord's salvation. Jesus is the Savior of the world. John uses the world the word world some 78 times. Some of these references refer to the physical arena, this earth to which Jesus came. But the majority of the references in the Gospel of John to world refers to the moral condition of humanity. World then in John refers to humanity in its hostility and opposition to God. John begins in chapter 1 by telling us that God is the creator of the world. In John chapter 1 verse 3, all things were made by him. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. But John will also go on to describe this creation, this good creation that God has made as a place, a realm of spiritual darkness and evil deeds. So he would say, and this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The world is full of darkness, spiritual darkness, and evil because of sin. John will also describe in 1 John 5, 19, that this world is under the sway, that is under the influence and control of the devil. Men have given their allegiance to Satan. This world he also describes as a realm under divine judgment. And so in John 16, 8-9, we read, And 
when he has come, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in him and so on. So this is a world that lies under judgment, under God's judgment because they have not received Christ, because they have not believed in him. And yet, John also teaches us that this world that is in darkness, that is hostile to God, this world that is under divine condemnation is also that the world that God loves. It is the object of God's love. And so you have that magnificent statement in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This realm of a rebellion, this realm of sin, that he gave his only begotten son. So the world refers to the spiritual sphere in which we live, governed by sin, evil, and Satan. But the world also, the term world, also refers to humanity in its scope, in its extensiveness. And this is what the Samaritans were saying. We have heard and we believe that this is the savior of the world. We must not read that this statement to mean that the Samaritans or John was suggesting that Jesus saves all men without exception, but rather all men without distinction. We need to know that when the Samaritan says Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, John already tells us that, that many believe. He did not say that every person in Samaria believed. We know that not every person in Jerusalem believed. So when Jesus is described as the savior of the world, it refers to him as the universal savior. In other words, Jesus is not a parochial savior. He's not simply a savior for the Jews, even though he came from the Jews. Jesus says earlier to the woman, salvation is of the Jews. God raised up the Jewish nation as the vehicle through which salvation would come to the world. But now this woman, seeing Jesus coming to Sychar in Samaria, to a mixed multitude of many who had come from other parts who were not Jewish, they identify that the salvation, though it commences with the Jew, was intended for the world. And they saw themselves as part of the world. This is indeed the savior of the world. He's not a parochial savior, not a savior for a particular race or particular region. He is the savior of all peoples. And already in the Gospel of John, John began to teach that the extent of Jesus' salvation transcends merely, transcends even the Jewish people. For in John chapter 10, 15 to 16, Jesus says, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Which fold? The Jewish fold. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. And Samaritans recognize that Jesus is the extensive Savior, the universal Savior, the Savior of all peoples. And John in 1 John chapter 2 emphasizes this when he says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Our Lord Jesus Christ saves people in every realm and in every race. 
He's the savior of the whole world, regardless of their ethnicity or their geographical distinctiveness. They are under the purview of this savior. It's interesting to note that in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, when the 24 elders are singing in heaven, we're told that they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And here it is, you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You see, Jesus is the savior of the world. He is the exclusive. He is the effective savior. He is the extensive and universal savior. My dear friends, Jesus' savior calls us in the first place to praise God because he has provided for us a real savior. From ancient times, people have been longing for a savior. We see this in the Greek and Roman pantheon when they conjured up superhuman beings, calling them gods who they thought could help them. They were seeking a true, a genuine deliverer. And things have not changed very much in our times. We are still looking for a savior. We are still drawing to ourselves saviors. Well, we don't call them saviors. We call them things like heroes and stars. But we have saviors. We look to politicians to defend our freedoms and to make our lives more bearable. They are our modern-day saviors. We look to sports personalities, sportsmen and women. <laughs> to help us to deal with the dreariness of life, to entertain us. They are our heroes. They are our deliverers. We look to technology for deliverance. All kinds of people are getting into problems and troubles because of Pokemon Go. We're desperate to be entertained, desperate to be delivered from the banality that characterizes much of life. We are, as a society are fascinated with superheroes, Batman and Superman. Why? Why, 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 why are we so interested in superheroes? Is it perhaps because instinctively we, ref, we recognize that, that we have forces arrayed against us, that we need superhuman help? We recognize, I think, fundamentally that we, that we have problems and issues and forces arranged against us that we cannot solve ourselves. We need outside intervention. A greater strength, extraordinary strength. You know, even the scientists who could never be seen as a believer, Carl Sagan, in discussing the possibility of life elsewhere in the universe, could say, it's nice to know that there is somebody else out there who can help us. What the New Testament teaches is that there is someone out there, someone right here who is able to help us. His name is Jesus. That very term, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. He is Savior. And he's God's gift to us. He's the savior we need. 
is not only able to save us from the banality of life, save us from boredom, save us from loneliness, is able to save us from greater problems, particularly sin. And that is why John says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. He's able to save us from Satan by delivering us from the wicked one. He's able to save us from God's wrath, God's judgment, which by the way rests upon all sinners. And so in the Gospel of John we read, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Jesus saves us from the wrath and from the anger and from eternal hell. And you and I have the confidence that we will be in heaven. Why? Because God has given us a savior that we need. A savior who can rescue us from Satan. A savior who can rescue us from hell. And how does he do this? He gave himself by dying on the cross that he paid for our sins with his own blood. And you and I must praise God because we have the Savior that we need. He is the omnicompetent Savior. He's able to save us to the utmost, completely. He's not a bridge that goes halfway across the gorge. He takes us all the way across the gorge of hell. He takes us and delivers us into the kingdom of God. Why? Because he is the truly perfect and competent and able Savior. His name is Jesus. And there is none to be compared to him. And there is none above him. He is the only one who can deal with our sin problem. What does it matter to have politicians and movie stars who can entertain us? What what, what does that do? When we stand before God, we are still under judgment. We need a greater, a stronger, a more powerful Savior who can rescue us from the more powerful problems that we have. Not only does he deliver us from, see salvation he gives is not only deliverance from that which is negative, like sin and damnation. It's positive, he delivers us to something. Delivers us unto eternal life. Delivers us unto the family of God. And so John could say as many as receive him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. You and I must praise God because we have a real savior, a perfect savior, a complete savior in Jesus Christ. But I'm reminded of the words of the New Testament scholar, the great B.B. Warfield. And he tells us that because Jesus Christ is a savior of the world, we must never despair. First of all, we must never despair about our sins. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. You must never despair of your sin. Now, if you are truly honest with yourself, you're going to admit that you haven't always done the right thing. You haven't always thought the right thing. In fact, you're going to admit that in, our, in your heart, as it is in all of our hearts, there's an issue of sin, of evil. And sometimes our sins are so powerful that we begin to feel that there's no way we can conquer them on our own. But you need to know that you have a savior who's bigger than your sins because he's a savior of the world. He's able to carry the sins of the world. And I'm saying to you that he's able to take care even of your sins. It's a marvelous truth that Jesus comes to Samaria, to Sychar in Samaria. 
He knew this woman. He knew everything about her. He could have avoided her. But nevertheless, he goes to her. He accepts her. He saves her. He knew the people of Sychar were people who were ignorant spiritually and were involved in false worship. But Jesus did not make a detour around Sychar. He went there to deliver. And this same Jesus who received the sinful woman and received the people of Sychar is a big savior. You see, we are great sinners, but we need a great savior. And in Christ, we have a great savior. It means that we, like the people of Sychar, must go to Christ. We must embrace him and receive him as our savior. We must confess our sins to him. We must trust in him. We must look only upon his death and his resurrection as the basis of our salvation. But we must never despair of our sins. We have in Jesus one who is greater than our sins. And if our hearts condemn us, he is greater even than our hearts. But secondly, you must never despair for the world. I think it is impossible to ignore and avoid the signs of declension in our society. Who would not readily confess that the moral climate in Canada in 2016 is vastly different from that in, of 50 years ago? We see the rise of biblical ignorance, growing immorality and ungodliness on every hand. We're living in such a polluted world that we fear even for our children. We wonder how, how our children will ever be able to navigate the moral morass in which we now live. We wonder 20 years or 30 years from now, how are they going to be coping? Because there's a coarsening of our society. And when we look on the international stage, we see evil. We see spiritual apathy. We see greed. We see violence. We see extremism. We see ungodliness on every hand. And the temptation is to throw our hands in the air and say, this world cannot be helped. There's no hope for this world. But you as a believer need to know that there is hope for this world. Why? Because this world has a savior. And his name is Jesus. We know that this is the savior of the world. We must, we don't have to embrace post-millennial idealism. We don't have to go that far to say that there's a golden age coming when the entire world will be Christianized, where the gospel will take root in every nation and then the entire world will become Christian. We don't have to go to post-millennialism. But what we do need to know is that there is a certainty that Jesus Christ is Savior not only of Canada and America, but he's the Savior of the world. And that in every nation, and in every tribe, and in every tongue, he has his own people, and he will save his people because his name is Jesus. And that one day, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
Jesus one day will redeem this entire creation and he will deliver it from its bankruptcy. He will judge the wicked. He will purge the world. He will reward the saints and Jesus Christ shall reign forever because he is a savior of the world. And this means that you and I must never despair for the world regardless of how bad it becomes. It has a savior. And the fields are ripe unto harvest. We must then with humility and yet with courage proclaim that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We must hold up Jesus before this world because he alone can save. We must not become weary in well-doing because if we do not faint in due time, we shall reap. Thanks be to God that we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And this Savior is a Savior of all the world. For Jesus' sake, amen.